programming note. I will be out of town for the last week of January. I'm participating in a YouTube show called Taking Off with Dan Milligan. As such, this will interrupt my flow as I was going to start the Pedestal series this week. So what I'm going to do instead is continue on with the regular series in North Africa, and when I get back, we'll then cover Operation Pedestal and then head back to the Eastern Front, where, if I remember correctly, we left off in late January 1942, and that's where we'll pick up the story. So if you'll be in Fort Worth, Texas the last weekend of January, maybe come by and say hi. I'll be posting my locations. Now on with the story. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 402, Monty Sets the Stage for Rommel. While the British Royal Navy moved heaven and earth to get pedestal underway, this massive convoy, though only partially successful, dovetailed with the Americans getting involved, not to mention more fighter planes being placed on Malta. So while Pedestal made it possible to only half-starve the people for the rest of the year, the aggressive nature of the Allies was returning to the Mediterranean. In June, the Axis lost six ships. In July, they lost seven. In August, the month of Pedestal, it was 12. Basically, as the Near East Command was beefing up, Rommel was receiving less and less of everything. Still, he was determined to attack and perhaps take some fuel from the enemy. How's that for two birds, one stone? Indeed, Rommel had already written to Berlin. He needed more of everything. What was eventually making its way to him did not even compensate for daily usage, much less building up a reserve. To this, the Italians promised him the seven last ships of the month, would come to him. It would be all for him. Rommel took this and decided to change his attack date from August 26th to the 30th. That way, he would have some additional supplies. And he had to attack. The Desert Fox was being told of more supplies and reinforcements for the enemy, landing at the Suez. Rommel just needed to get there and cut off that option to the enemy. And as Berlin needed this to work, though Rommel was a pain in the backside to deal with, Kesselring would bring fuel from Crete, and he would give him a few more planes from the Luftwaffe. Rommel was starting to feel better. And yet, of the seven ships promised to him, the Allies had the bad form to sink four of them. This seemed to be the last straw. Rommel told Rome and Berlin of the lost ships, that he was feeling poorly, and they might want to send him a deputy, perhaps General Guderian, you know, someone who could take over if needed. That man, however, was busy on the Eastern Front, so Rommel got on with his preparations, but it must be noted, not with his usual energy and enthusiasm. Meanwhile, on the other side of the barbed wire, Monty was his own version of energy and pluck. First Lieutenant General Oliver Reese of the 30th Corps was given enough men to make each division three brigades strong. Also, the men were spread out a bit more to give a greater defense in depth. 
Lieutenant General Brian Horrocks of the 13th Corps was also given help. His New Zealanders were given a brigade from the 44th Division to make up for the badly mauled 4th New Zealand Brigade. As stated earlier, the rest of the 44th Division was placed on Alam Halfa Ridge, just behind and a bit lower than Ruisat Ridge, and all those men were behind a most impressive minefield. Now, everyone on the Allied side expected Rommel to swing south, go for about 10 to 15 miles, and then turn north to, one, hit the enemy on the ridges in their flanks, and then do the same to 30th Corps further north. With that, the attackers could grab all the fuel they could find and keep going all the way to the Suez. And, it has to be said, Rommel had, by this point, gotten used to his enemy trying for a while and then giving up. Hopefully, that same pattern would play out here. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. And now a mental map is needed, if Monty's trap is to be understood. Having studied all he could of the previous desert battles, Montgomery liked the idea of having Rommel trapped in a cauldron, and the three main ridges in the area would play their part. Though the line in between the two opponents was not a straight one, in the middle of the line, it ran across the western edge of the Ruisat Ridge, where Rommel had his own mines and tanks placed. Just below the Ruisat Ridge was the Alam Navil Ridge, about half as big. And behind, or to the east of both of them, and a bit in between these ridges, is the Alam Halfa Ridge. Not only was the 44th Division on that ridge in strength, but they had an overabundance of artillery. Even better, on the southwestern corner of the Alam Halfa Ridge, there was the 22nd Armored Brigade with its anti-tank guns and tanks themselves cleverly hidden. By the time the Panzers spotted them, having swung southeast and then turned north, they, the Panzers, would be fired upon almost at point-blank range. But even that was not enough for Monty. The gap between the Ruisat Ridge and the Alam Halfa Ridge is about four miles, just a little too big to suit the new CNC. 
So he had the 23rd Armor Brigade placed there, ready to go in any direction to help put out a fire. Also, the 8th Armor Brigade was placed to the east of the hidden 22nd Armor Brigade on Halfa's southwestern corner and below Alam Halfa Ridge, again by some four miles. The 8th Armor Brigade represented a nasty trap should Rommel get this far. The reason for this positioning was in anticipation of Rommel. Again, if he came at them from the south, as everyone expected him to, then the 7th Motor Brigade and the 4th Armor Brigade sitting below the New Zealanders on the Alam Naville Ridge, and they were sitting behind a major minefield. They, if the Germans came their way, would simply retreat in good order. That is, until they reached the 8th Armored Brigade. Then, all three brigades, with help from the 22nd Armored Brigade and the 23rd Armored Brigade, a bit more north, might help too, if needed. That was the cauldron. In other words, Rommel's aggressive nature was being used against him, and the trap being set was a large area with massive amounts of firepower by the defenders, with a retreat route that would see hundreds of Allied tanks on Rommel's rear as he tried to get away. But would this work? As Rommel was shown to be a master manipulator and brilliant with his sleight of hand, not to mention having a history of charging into the lion's mouth and snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. When Churchill returned from his visit with Stalin, he could tell for himself how much Monty had changed the atmosphere here at El Alamein. General Brooke noticed it as well and approved. Then Monty gave them a briefing to show how he understood the larger situation and his nasty surprise set for Rommel. It didn't hurt that, at the time, the over-exuberant Prime Minister was already in a good mood, having come from Moscow and gotten Stalin to accept that there would be no cross-channel attack this year. But it had not been easy. Back on August 12th, Churchill took off in a B-24 Liberator from Tehran, Persia, for Moscow with his senior military advisors. This flight took ten and a half hours. Churchill knew that Stalin did not make small talk, so jumped right to the heart of the matter. The British Prime Minister told the Soviet leader that they and the Americans would not be ready for a cross-channel attempt in 1942. But then, trying to balance out this with some good news, the Prime Minister quickly added on, by the end of 1942, over one million American troops would be able to reach the United Kingdom, which would increase their total troop numbers, creating an expeditionary force of 27 divisions, to which the British government were prepared to add 21 more divisions. This all sounded well and good, but if those men were not being thrown into northern France, then what was the point? But Stalin put it this way. He asked the Prime Minister if he and his people were afraid to fight the Germans. Then he said, a man who was not prepared to take risks could not win a war. Churchill could see that his approach was crashing, so switched topics to the Americans landing in North Africa. This, combined with the British bombing of Germany's industrial centers, like Essen, should lighten the mood in the room. It did not. 
but the Soviet premier could see the writing on the wall. His Western partners would not be making a direct attack this year, maybe the following year. And it looked, for now, that the Russians were holding their own. So Stalin said what was expected of him. As for the North American landing, Stalin replied, May God help this enterprise to succeed. Which was lip service, but in diplomatic circles, that's the same thing as a handshake. Their meeting lasted four hours, and when it was done, Churchill sincerely felt that he had made a real connection with Stalin, and that was his only goal. And then he blew it. That evening, Churchill went back to State Dacha Number 7, where the Prime Minister told his men that Stalin was a peasant whom he knew how to handle. And that's when the gloves came off, because, of course, the room was bugged. That evening, at dinner, Stalin was much more colder than the day before, and Avril Harriman, an envoy of FDR, got to watch as Stalin tore into Churchill, complaining about no cross-channel invasion and that Operation Torch did not concern or help the Soviet Union directly. Churchill tried a different subject, the convoys of supplies coming to the USSR. To this, Stalin said, much has been promised, but not much had been delivered. The Prime Minister had had enough. He forcibly told Stalin, Torch would assist the Soviet government and would be the only active military operation that could have this effect in the autumn of 1942. Between this outburst and Churchill throwing another Stalin unpleasant statement back in his face, the Soviet leader was impressed. Bullies always respect strength. Stalin retreated from his unpleasant attitude and asked Churchill, could you stay another day? So the two men went to Stalin's personal residence and were served by his daughter and a housekeeper. The result of this meeting was a joint statement during the early morning hours of August 16th, saying, the Soviet Union Great Britain and the U.S. of A. would continue to fight against Nazi Germany until the complete destruction of Hitlerism and any similar tyranny has been achieved. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Now, hindsight blinds us to the lingering results of this meeting. Stalin had been much more distant with his Western partners before this moment. If anything, each side, FDR and the Prime Minister on one, 
Stalin, on the other, half expected the other side to reach some kind of deal with Hitler and thus leave the other half hanging. But not now. Stalin could see that Churchill and FDR were serious about defeating Hitler and helping Soviet Russia in its hour of need. In short, Churchill's trip had its highs and lows, but it ended well, and that's all that matters in meetings. Back to North Africa, when Churchill left Monty, he wrote in the general's visiting book, May the anniversary of Blenheim, which marks the opening of the command, bring to the C&C of the 8th Army and his troops the fame and fortune they will surely deserve. Rommel could see for himself that the northern half of the enemy's defensive line had been strengthened, which did not matter to him very much as he knew his real strength lied in his panzers. So he would use them to swing through the southern half and then turn north. And drawing on his own past battles, Rommel would have four mobile columns of armor drive east and then turn north. The most northern part of this Axis fan was the column of the 90th Light Division. Below them would be the Italian divisions, the Italian 20th Mobile Corps with the Ariete and Littorio Armored Divisions. And below them would be the Africa Corps, led by General Nearing, with his 200 medium tanks. This, of course, included the battle-hardened 15th and 21st Panzers. But needing as much punching power as possible, Rommel also gathered up his reconnaissance units and brought them together to serve as the last and lowest hanging part of his fan that would spread out as they turned north. The far eastern edge of this hopeful cauldron was manned by, as we saw, 22nd Armored and 8th Armored Brigades. They were under the Alam Halfa Ridge, so had a good chance of being engaged by the Panzers. The man in charge of these two brigades was Major General Alexander Gatehouse, commander of 10th Armored Division, and he had 210 tanks, of which 164 of them were the valued Grants. What was about to unfold was another Rommel attack, done the same way that so many previous battles had started out, now he could only hope that his enemy would do what they normally did when he charged at them, namely by reacting piecemeal, with their armor showing up late, with their artillery taken out, and in the end, the larger overall group of defenders would just sit there and watch as individual brigades were wiped out before the rest of them retreated east. Yes, all would probably play out the same way as it always had, the only difference being Montgomery.